Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Where does a caravan go? I'm sorry, this seems like a very existential question. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Dara Lynn and Alex Ward making his Weeds debut. Alex is joining us uh, from uh, the Worldly Podcast, the Foreign Pod. Uh, he covers national security and military issues, and we are doing a strategic redeployment of our resources here. We are, in here. fact, yes, yes. This is a weed surge. <laughs> there, is a, there is a surge. We there are is dealing a, with an upcoming onrush of news, and so we are preparing. <laughs> yes, news of an, of an unconventional variety. Now, if you listen to yesterday's episode, you will know that the weeds did its due diligence as instructed by George Soros and others, did not get distracted, talked about health care, talked about the pre-existing conditions. But today, I'm feeling a little, a little distracted. The president tweeted this morning that the caravans are made up of some very tough fighters and people. They fought back hard and viciously against Mexico at northern border before breaking through. Mexican soldiers were hurt, were unable or unwilling to stop caravan, should stop them before they reach our border, but won't. Our military is being mobilized at the southern border. Many more troops coming. We will not let these caravans, which are also made up of some very bad thugs and gang members, into the U.S. Our border is sacred, must come in legally, turn around, exclamation point. So I think there's a there's a picture being painted here that there is a group of, uh, I don't know, tough fighters who have defeated the Mexican army and that we need to send troops on an emergency basis to sort of turn back. And Alex, this is, this is your field. Like, what is actually happening as the military deploys to the southern border? Sure. So it's the best kind of way to think about it is the prepositioning, right? Mm-hmm. So in case this, like, White Walker-level threat shows up as it's being portrayed, the military will be in, in installations or bases or in Texas, Arizona, elsewhere, and they will just kind of be there, ready to go, on the chance that the caravan shows up. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about, uh, right now, it's 5,239 or so troops, uh, or no, more than that. But basically, you'll see a mix of National Guard, active duty troops, and the whole point of this, in theory, is the fact that they're actually there should deter 
this caravan from coming because they'll also be able to kind of use lethal force as the insinuation. But no, they can't, right? Because that's like, those are their rules of engagement. Right. So they're really just kind of hanging out and helping Border Patrol agents at the end of the day. So, okay, so I do have a question about this because, you know, this is something that the two of us have explained to the public a bunch, you know, when the National Guard got sent in April. Yes, Posse Comitatus makes it really clear that you don't get to do domestic law enforcement as a branch of the U.S. military. However, my understanding is that the order from Secretary of Defense Mattis involves a clause about there's an expectation that people will be engaging with migrants and protesters. And that is what throws me because it does kind of seem that while the primary purpose is this kind of mission support backfill role to allow border agents to be doing line enforcement at the border rather than having to do both line enforcement and paperwork and engineering and all that kind of thing, that they're also kind of building in a possibility that some kind of crowd control might be needed. So my understanding of that is because it is a title 10 authorization, meaning that these forces are active duty, they are under the Department of Defense. What they're allowed to do is if they come into contact with a mob of sorts, that they can defend themselves. They are armed. Uh, they can push back if needed, but they're not encouraged to kind of like go out and stop and destroy, sure. right? They're not dropping bombs. They're not shooting at people. They are there and they have rules of engagement. There are these rules that do exist and they're standardized across the board for this kind of situation. So if the need arises and this caravan decides to storm the gates, then yes, the military could engage if necessary. Of course, I think they would do everything short of shooting until they had to. So wait, let's let's back yeah. this up one yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Posse comitatus, this is a 19th century law, and it bars the use of the military for domestic law enforcement, right? right. This is basically an end of reconstruction type measure, right? That yeah. you can't, the, the federal government can't say, we don't like how things are going down in state X, so we're sending in the army to, to do that job instead. But obviously, the military can operate on U.S. soil. There are sure. bases in the United States. They do all kinds of things. So one thing that you can do is send the military somewhere and have them, I don't know what, like they could build stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in the, this specific case, the Border Patrol, which does have the primary mission of like catching people at the border, but also like any agency, it does lots of other stuff. They have like offices and, you know, they have trucks and yeah. the trucks break down, blah, blah, blah. So you can send the military to sort of backfill and like then the Border Patrol can send all its agents, I don't know, out onto the border roaming around. And so in the past, sometimes National Guard gets sent around places kind of unarmed to do this or that. But it's still always the case that, like, if you – I don't know. Like, if you show up at a military base and try to attack it, like, they will shoot back at you, right? Like, not, yes, no, not, exactly. Right. Not, yeah, yeah. Not, not, not with standing comitatus, right? So the point here – I mean, if I'm wrong – is basically there's going to be a lot of soldiers near the border and they are being told – if they for some reason come under attack by Mexican migrants or yeah. I guess Central American, like they they would fight back. Right, which I, at the end of the day makes sense, right? Like you wouldn't want the military not to fight back if they were attacked. So I get that they have those rules of engagement. Right. But, but I want to be clear that like that they are not going out and searching and destroying <laughs> right. a caravan that's coming. They are there – Again, mostly in backfill, and really what they'll also be doing is joining entry identification teams, which is effectively like sitting on high areas, 
looking out and seeing if people are coming and then telling Border Patrol, like, hey, there's people over there. And they have helicopters okay. and night vision to do that. Um, you know, they can get up high. So they're, they're not necessarily working together. They're working side by side. It's a bit uh-huh. of a workaround. I think some of them have been authorized to do that, but for and there are more coming. So my guess is they would be joining the entry identification teams. But at the end of the day, th- this is really just a back office function. But so, so the the presumption, though, I mean, because there's like two sort of spins on what's going on, right? Yes. I feel like there's like what you're hearing from the bureaucracy, which is like this caravan is a large number of people, so there is a logistical challenge of sort of processing them essentially, and so we want to send more people to help out. And then there's the Twitter right. narrative from the president, which is that this group of gang members has defeated the Mexican authorities in pitched battle. Yeah, and and I think that while the bureaucracy talks about the deployment right now as this first track back office thing, they are leaving open the possibility that something like what the president describes might happen. It's worth talking about the grain of truth around which the president has built a, like, ginormous bolus of fear. Yeah, what Um, happened? Both the caravan that is currently in southern Mexico, which is the caravan that has freaked the president out so much, and subsequent large groups of people who have traveled up from the Northern Triangle to Mexico kind of in its stead have had confrontations with Mexican police at the Mexico-Guatemala border. Uh, That's because Mexico has, at the behest of the president, done a lot to try to prevent people from entering. They've said that people are allowed to enter, you know, to claim asylum in Mexico, but they've been letting those people in very slowly. And so both when the first caravan arrived on October 20th and earlier this week, uh, there have been kind of confrontations in which people have tried to push through Mexican police. Mexican police have been injured in both of those cases. So, like, yes, it is true that Mexican authorities were injured. They weren't soldiers. They were police. It wasn't the northern border of Mexico. It was the southern border of Mexico, the northern border of Guatemala. But the idea that a mass of people is pushing through border authorities is not wrong. And that When they announced the deployment on on Monday, U.S. authorities said this is what alarms us about this caravan compared to previous groups. The question is whether that is what the caravan would automatically do if they came to the U.S.-Mexico border or if that is an act of desperation from people who are trying to get in and feel that they are not being allowed to get in the normal way. The caravan from April presented themselves at a port of entry, you know, those of them who were left by the time they got to the U.S.-Mexico border to seek asylum legally. The current caravan has declared an intention of seeking asylum in the U.S., which implies that they would, you know, also do the same thing. They have not declared an intention to evade U.S. border authorities in the same way that they declared an intention to make it through Mexico. So, you know, it's not super clear whether you can look to what's already happened and predict what's going to happen at the U.S.-Mexico border. But that's a possibility that they're preparing for that, you know, it's not a totally unreasonable thing to prepare for. It's just that Donald Trump, because he's Donald Trump, is taking this and turning it into this is a hardened fighting force, which is ludicrous. You could make a case. I'm not sure it's a strong one, but you could make a case that this is the a responsible policy approach, right? That if there is going to be this kind of threat at ports of entry, why not have those that are trained at spotting threats, mm-hmm. at pushing back on them? But I agree with you completely, Dara, that it does make sense in a way. But, like, it is not a hardened force. I think the issue here, taking a step back and 
you know, doing a fool's errand of trying to think what's in Trump's head. Like, anytime he sort of feels there's a security threat, his first instinct is military, right? Uh-huh. And, like, that's a kind of reasonable thing for someone not super familiar with national security policy to, to consider, uh-huh. right? It's a guy who is not sophisticated in the way he thinks about how the way the world works. And so when he sees a nail, he thinks of the hammer. So it doesn't surprise me that he would reach for the military option here. Obviously, he's seen two past presidents do so. And again, you can make the case that if there is a security threat, the military is best to handle it. But it is the rhetoric around it that is the most troubling to me, more so than the policy approach. Mm -hmm. So something like this has happened before, right? There was a a National Guard deployment to the border under President Bush and then another one under President Obama. I mean, it it seemed like those were both undertaken with a a different kind of theatrics, Um, but were they were they different like legally, logistically? Yes. So uh, what what happened? Then? So they're so they're Title Thirty Two, mm-hmm. uh, which means that they are well. First of all, Title Thirty Two National Guard. So effectively, okay. they are under states' authority. Okay. So the governor of Texas runs the Texas National Guard. The governor of New Mexico runs the New Mexico National Guard. And while they are all working for a concerted effort, they are not necessarily working at the behest of the president of mm-hmm. the Secretary of Defense. I mean, they are also for the president at the end of the day. But sure. that that's sort of the legal standpoint here. This, these are active duty troops, the, the 5,200 right. that were sent. So they are Title 10. They are under the Department of Defense. This is like – this is an active military mission. Right. Right. We have now officially sent more active duty troops to the border than we have to Syria. Right. Right. Like two and a half times more. So what's, <laughs> so what's, so what's the point? Of, so, I mean, my understanding was that, right, you mobilize National Guard specifically because – under that legal authority, right? Like, this is a, a legal framework that exists for state governments, which do do domestic law enforcement to gain access to extra people, more military-style equipment. I mean, it seems like like this is, it feels to me, exactly what the National Guard is for, right? Like, if the state of Texas or Arizona feels it is being overwhelmed by an unusual problem, it has the ability to call on people with some military training, with military equipment, who are legally authorized to work in the United States on domestic problems. So, like, why the switch to active duty? What does that allow? I mean, I keep coming back to this two-track thing. There's the effort that is being made by the people who are actually trying to operationalize this to do it in a way that makes sense. And then there's what Donald Trump appears to want, which is, you know, like, this is a president who, as a candidate, threatened to invade Mexico (laughs) on the basis of border security. Like, Donald Trump's understanding of posse comitatus is, uh, I would assume, limited at best. So, I genuinely don't know whether there's an explanation for this that isn't just Donald Trump already sent the National Guard. He wants something more forceful this time. I think that's right. I mean, this is a guy who, like, talked his defense budget down by 30-plus billion dollars because he said $700 billion when they were planning for $730. So, uh, like, <laughs> so, so, I, you know, it, I think he said, I want troops there and I want it to look tougher. And it makes more sense to have active-duty troops, full-time warriors— with weapons, with night vision abilities from these helicopters, as opposed to National Guard troops who are weekend warriors, still very good. My father was a National Guardsman. It's not a not a knock on them. And that matches the problem set. National Guard matches the problem set. If you uh-huh. need to fill back office functions, if you need just some help on surveillance, National Guard is more than enough. What you're taking is full-time troops that are now, regardless of kind of what they do, they are taken away from what could be other priorities around the world and the many other places that we are. Um, 
but it's because they have the ability to look tougher and can kind of do this consistently and they have more know-how than the National Guard. So it's – I get why this is sort of the halfway point when you start talking to NORTHCOM folks and, and others. Like, yes, we are kind of doing a National Guard mission with active duty troops and that may kind of satisfy both parties. There's a silver lining here that I don't think is intentional at all, but something that I think is worth thinking about is that in 2014, during the Ferguson protests, a lot of former active duty military looked at the photos of these local law enforcement and National Guardsmen aiming into the crowd as if they were going to shoot somebody at any time and going, this is very bad. These are not the rules of engagement we're taught in the actual United States military. We're taught to be much more restrained in our use of force. Customs and Border Protection officials, especially USBP, like, have had in the recent past problems with uses of force. And there's currently a big debate about whether their narrative that attacks on agents have increased is real or whether that's a creative method of accounting. It's not necessarily clear that in the absence of active duty military with like the potential for hundreds or a thousand people trying to converge on a single spot at the border that you wouldn't get people freaked out. And maybe having military there to do some of those support roles actually means you have people who are going to be paradoxically more restrained in their likelihood of using force. Okay, let's take a break and then I want to talk about the timing here. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Okay, so where is the caravan? 
They're currently in the state of Chiapas, which is in southern Mexico. This is a rough estimate from my part. Like, if you draw a line on the map from where they are to the very nearest point on the U.S.-Mexico border, which is the southern tip of Texas, where it hits the Gulf of Mexico, you get about 750 miles as of where they were yesterday. Of course, to do that, they would have to be walking over a little bit of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, So it's probable that they're not going to go there. No one really knows yet where exactly on the border the caravan is going to go, partly because they're still like about 750 to 1,000 miles away. The last caravan in April went to San Isidro, which is all the way over in San Diego, which is a very long journey across Mexico. This caravan might be sticking to, you know, the eastern part of Mexico and maybe going into Texas, that's not clear yet. But even then, we're talking about, they're going about 150 miles a week. We're talking about six weeks. Like, it's not going to show up in time for the, you know, the joke that I made on Today Explained yesterday, apologies to you, Vox Media Podcast Network completists out there, is that if this is, in fact, a Democratic plot to get people to come in so that they can vote illegally in the midterm elections, which is one of the conspiracy theories that's been ricocheting around conservative social media, then Democrats did a very poor job of planning it because they're going to show up several weeks late. Right. It looks to me, right, so like from Chiapas to McAllen, Texas, is about a thousand miles on foot with a, a large group of people. So, I mean, clearly the context here is that we're having midterm elections, in six days, right? And, you know, I mean, Trump has even said, right, as he works out his different campaign rally speeches that, you know, this election is about Kavanaugh, the caravan, and I don't know, there's like some other kinds of things here. I guess it would be convenient for his political theater to have like clashes at the border three days from now. I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm no political expert, right. but but I what I do know is that when it comes to how Trump uses the military, he again, as I'm, I'll repeat a point, like this is kind of the option he always reaches for. So I don't doubt that maybe in Trump's mind, this is both politically beneficial and the right thing to do. Right, right, right. So like, yeah, I mean, I guess it kind of like the caravan worked out for him like, in, in a weird way, right? That like he is taking advantage of a situation that can work out in his favor while arguably doing the right thing. That said, like, if you're going to preposition troops, you need to do it kind of six weeks in advance. <laughs> no, because we're already seeing that, you know, a thousand or so are there uh, as of, like, Saturday. They, I mean, they could move very quickly. Well, I mean, this right, is my— so, like, that, that, so that's the political th- th- calculation this in my is, mind. This is my question, right? I mean, you have—how many people is this that we're talking about? It's like a few thousand people. Four thousand or so, Dan? In the caravan? Uh, it's currently four thousand and it's dwindling. Right. So it's yeah, so, it's, so it's, it's, it's going to be fewer people by any measure than the number right. of troops so, that are being sure. there. So it's four thousand ish people. They're probably six weeks walk away, and we don't know where they're going. Right. Yeah, but we'll know where they go. No, no, no. I mean, I know we will, but I mean, I'm saying like this is the United States of America in 2018. Right. We're not talking about the U.S. Army marching on foot. Right. right. Like we have interior lines. Yes. We have airplanes. We have helicopters. You could say, why don't we just see how this looks three weeks from now, right? We will have a better sense of how many people are in the caravan and of where they are going. And then we could send troops there. But that would mean doing it after the midterms. Whereas if you preposition now, you get to do it before. But, like, are we gaining anything by moving so early? So— I think that there are three answers to that question, and two of them are in the kind of 
defensible, but who knows if they were actually motivating it or not. And one of them is the political answer that like, well, what happens between now and then is the midterms. And Donald Trump and company have, you know, there are people in the White House who have explicitly said that, quote unquote, this is the play for the midterms. This is the closing argument is turning the caravan into a national crisis. And so having created this national crisis, Trump is now doing something to show he is solving it. The two more defensible ways to look at this. One is just pure preparation. You know, you don't actually want people in, especially like military in an unfamiliar role domestically within the United States, getting thrown in there without any training, without having done any exercises. Ports of entry are already looking over the plans that they have on the shelf to deal with, you know, large groups of people coming in. There have been kind of practice runs in El Paso shutting down all but one uh, lane to get in there, which of course means that you're responding to a large group of people by restricting entry, which could exacerbate things, but is, you know, one of the ways that they're trying to deal with making sure that they see everybody who's coming in. So those things are already happening. It is better for them to happen. You know, it's better to have your dress rehearsal with with your full cast than Mm -hmm. it is to just have it with half your cast. So that's kind of one argument. The other one is engineering. Northcom was pretty clear on Monday. (laughs) In the same breath as they were talking about sending troops, they were talking about miles of concertina wire that they have on 22 miles of barbed wire. (laughs) Which, like... You can make the argument that since so much of border enforcement is what's called funneling, that you try to make sure that you know where people are going to enter so that you can more easily apprehend them. And this is the argument for building physical barriers. Not that you actually want to barricade off the entire border, but that you want to use barriers so that the more easily crossed areas are funneled into somewhere you know people are going to come in, that you want to improve or like make that funneling more extensive just in case you're dealing with a thousand people. So here's an interesting thing, right, is Northcom itself, that's relatively new institution, right? Um, ish. Uh, yes, no. I mean, it's been around for missile defense reasons, uh, and of course, you know, just keeping missiles out of, out of from hitting us. Fair enough. But I mean, the United States, sort of post World War II, in a little bit of unusual way, has a very sort of externally directed military, right? Like we've got like big bases in Japan and Germany, and we have like. You know, there's like a map of the commands, and it covers the whole world, right? right? And in a sense, there's something sort of like old school and traditionalistic about thinking about a military force as being inside your own country and like possibly near your country's borders and like dealing with adjacent countries and defending yourself against them. But that really hasn't been like the the focus of American military policy for a long, long time. No, I mean, that's right. I mean, one of America's greatest strengths forever has been, like, we are bordered on the west and east by water and from the north and south by Canada and Mexico. So it's, like, been one of the secret sauces of our success since since independence. But, I mean, Trump has, in various times, sort of vocalized skepticism about America's global military posture, right? He complains about the cost of stationing troops abroad. And you can almost see in this gesture a notion of like a a whole different vision of both the border and the military, right? In which the U.S.-Mexico border is conceived of as a hard security threat. 
Right. I mean, I think he does see this as a potential challenge. I don't think he believes that Mexico will invade the United States. I don't think he believes that this is an existential threat to the United States, but I do believe that he feels that this is the only way to repel a possible security threat at the border. But I do want to push back on Trump and the military a little bit, just because he says he doesn't want foreign interventions, and I believe him when he says that, but he has no problem using the military abroad. Like, he is right. severely escalated. Like, just look at the stats from 2017. He severely escalated airstrikes in the Middle East, uh, the campaign in Somalia. Uh, it's like, it's just, I, my, it boggles my mind. Like, he's dropping, you know, the drone program's gone off the rails. Um, he has escalated the Obama approach of just kind of, like, quiet bombing. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, he's escalated support for the Yemen war. Like, he has no problem being a hawk uh, short of invading another country. Right. This is something that, you know, you and I have talked about a bunch going back to, like, the campaign in 2016, right? It's like, when people say that Trump is a deal maker, they don't actually mean he's a compromiser. They mean that he, like, he calls himself a deal maker because he thinks that he's very good at threatening people into giving him what he wants. Right. So, like, this kind of no care at all stick and being very willing to go to the stick is something that we've seen in his approach to Central America and Mexico as well, right? The the kind of double game that ambassadors to Northern Triangle countries have been trying to do in saying, yeah, no, we still believe the things we have been saying about the most important way to deal with this current flow of people from the Northern Triangle is development. But the president is saying that we're going to cut off foreign aid. Don't worry, we're still giving it to you. Like, it's not that surprising that somebody who thinks that the right approach to keeping people from leaving their countries is to threaten their governments to cut off foreign aid also sees the military as a default response to every problem. I mean, it is the, to your point, like, this is the maximalist position. Right. Right. Not only are we going to cut off the aid, which, of course, would be counterproductive to the whole notion of, like, why many of them want to come here. But two is, like, we will beat you with sticks and right. shoot you with guns. And, like, no one wants to see that, really. I don't even think Trump does. <laughs> like, uh-huh. um, But it is, like, where does he go from here? Like, let's say the caravan does come. Is he willing? Like, the rules of engagement say they can defend themselves. Is he willing to say, like— shoot when you see the whites of their eyes. Is he willing to do that? Like, I don't know how far this can go. I think he's hoping right. and the whole institute and the whole bureaucracy But to be hoping. clear, that is, I mean, they have not been given the rules of no, engagement. No, of course they— of, Stand by the border and shoot to kill anyone who crosses the Of course the line. they haven't. But let's say, you know, you have troops not that far across, yeah. from, like on, on the U.S. side and, and the caravan on the Mexico side. Sure. And listen, they will, like, I guess that's what I want to know about this is I get that we're preparing great— you can make that good case. In the chance that the caravan shows up, right. what are the safeguards against the president, like, authorizing shots? What are you? I, I know that there's laws against this and all that stuff, but, like, I, I, right. I, I just am just wondering where to go from here if we ever get to there. And the flip side of that is, like, what happens if the military is— not doing anything directly because they're not authorized to do anything directly. And the visuals are of a bunch of people, you know, waiting outside a port of entry. Given how important visuals have been to this story and, you know, the B-roll of masses of people traveling, it's not super clear to me that if Donald Trump sees footage of a bunch of people waiting at a port of entry, he doesn't go, where the hell are the military? Why are these people here? Even though what is going on is, you know, would be in this world perfectly legal. Like, 
the administration has not always been great about drawing a clear distinction between people who are coming to seek asylum, which is ostensibly legal, and people who are intending to cross illegally and, you know, abscond into the United States. And it's certainly not clear that Trump himself understands that, which is why he's trying to tell people to turn back and all that kind of thing. So I don't want to overstate the tail risk here. I think it's really easy for people to kind of assume that the worst is going to happen and we're going to descend into a state of martial law or civil unrest or whatever. But it's not exactly like this is guaranteed to calm the president down. I don't know how seriously to take the president's rhetoric, but what he seemed to be saying this morning is that the Mexican authorities should have fought back harder, right, at the border with Guatemala, right? That, like, it's clearly not the case that this group of people, like, outgunned the Mexican police, right? What happened is, is that they pushed their way through and they hurt some Mexican police officers because the Mexican police was not trying to stop them. Shooting at them, right? I mean, you know, because it's it's a challenge, right, for, like, in any kind of crowd control scenario, right, is, like, how far do you go, right? And what the Mexican authorities did was they, like, did not go that far, right? When 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 the caravan pushed forward and when some of their people right. got injured, I mean, in, they initially, backed away. The initial caravan, yeah. The kind of subsequent large groups of people who have been coming through, like, they've been using rubber bullets. Like, mm. Oh, have they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, a, a Honduran migrant died on Monday because he took a rubber bullet to the head. This is like, stuff is getting not good at the Mexico-Guatemala border. And it's getting not good partially because people, like, large groups of people continue to come and because the Mexican authorities are trying to deal with this large group of people coming in while not just kind of opening the door to everybody and giving them transit visas, which would be the most orderly way to do it, but also is inconsistent with what they've said, with what Trump clearly wants. You know, Mexico is in a really tough position right now because on the one hand, they are aware that this is a long-term issue, that like this isn't going to go away next week while the innovation of large groups of people is a is getting increasingly frequent. The Northern Triangle migration through Mexico is several years old at this point. And so they're trying to unveil, you know, they're calling a you are home policy that packages things they were already doing with an outreach program to kind of encourage Central American migrants to stay in Mexico. But at the same time, they are aware that their relationship with the United States depends in large part on how Donald Trump feels they're doing at helping secure the United States border. So there is a pretty strong incentive for them to prevent as many people as possible from coming in right now. And the concern for me isn't the U.S.-Mexico border. The concern really is I don't know how stuff at the Mexico-Guatemala border gets better if, you know, we continue to see large groups trying to cross at once and the stance of the Mexican government continues to be that people should just turn back. Yeah, like the split screen that will show up on Fox News of a, of troops like shoveling Border Patrol horse shit uh-huh. and like as the caravan approaches is going to drive Trump crazy, uh-huh. right? And then, then that's when I worry that he gets on the phone with a, a General Shaughnessy of Northcom or Mattis or whoever the heck he wants to talk to and go, well, you guys got to step this up. Right. Like this, you know, th- that... So I I don't mind the maximums again the position of the troops there I mind what they may be asked to do sure. and and that sort of gray area of the pushback. Okay, take another break and then I want to talk more about Mexico. Tara, what is happening 
in Mexico at like high levels here, right? Like this topic of Central Americans crossing through Mexico and coming to the United States has been put on the U.S. political agenda in like a high way, right? This is like one of the the three to five things that we are talking about in America in October. Is this like a big deal in Mexico, like that people have big statements about and and things are happening? Because there's like the other way that governments operate, where like there are policies and things are happening, but it doesn't necessarily dominate politics. Right. I don't know a, a ton about Mexican domestic politics. My understanding is that the big issue in Mexican domestic politics right now is I guess a they're referendum between presidents. on a— Well, there's that, and then there's also the uh, the airport referendum, right. um, <laughs> which, you know, it seems to be a much more urgent issue to people. The kind of high-level Mexican statements have come over the last couple of years when there have been points of tension with the U.S. in one direction or another, like— On the one hand, Mexico really has stepped up its cooperation on immigration enforcement. Uh, I feel like I might have mentioned this stat the last time we talked about this on the weeds, but like something about something like 950,000 Central American migrants have been detained and deported over the last several years from Mexico. Uh, It's something that they're doing, you know, in the same way that a lot of countries' governments do things that aren't necessarily politically popular that help the United States, but aren't so unpopular that there's substantial pressure not to do them. Like, that's, I think, a fair way to characterize the Mexican role in, in U.S. immigration enforcement. The kind of flip side of that is that when Trump has gotten really bullying in his stance toward the Mexican and Central American governments, there's been, you know, kind of statements of solidarity. Like, obviously, the Mexican government has been very clear about how they think the wall is unnecessary and they're not paying for it. They'll also kind of step up when Trump threatens to cut off aid to Central America. They'll step up when Trump tries to blame Central American governments for not doing anything to stop their people, that kind of thing. Because there is a certain desire desire to not be seen as, you know, being Trump's lackey when Trump doesn't appear to have a ton of respect. At the ground level, while there is harassment of Central American migrants and they are liable to crime, the caravan in particular, as it's gone through Chiapas, there's been a lot of effort on the part of the Mexican towns they're traveling through to, you know, kind of show support, to give people shoes, to give people food. I think that having turned this into an international humanitarian issue, there's been kind of a certain backlash um, in favor of Central American migrants that might not have happened had Trump not been so totally involved. But, you know, with the coming presidential transition, one of the big questions in the relationship with AMLO, the incoming Mexican president, has been like, He is the caricature of Bernie Sanders from the 2016 presidential campaign. Like, the caricature of Bernie Sanders was that he cared, you know, a ton about economic issues and was totally willing to throw social issues under the bus for them. Like, AMLO does not have a super well-developed migration policy, to say the least. He doesn't have a super well-developed criminal justice policy. So the possibility that the Trump administration could use that to get concessions from the Mexican government on immigration enforcement in exchange for something that AMLO wanted, like, was a live possibility. It's just not clear, given how fraught the caravan issue in particular is right now, how that's going to work out, especially if 
there are further policy responses from the U.S. that result in people who are trying to get into the U.S. having to wait in Mexico instead, which is a very live possibility. It seems like one, you know, potential direction of all this, right? I mean, if the U.S. military is going to be more involved in this issue and if there is going to be cooperation between the U.S. and Mexico would be to send troops not to the U.S.-Mexico border, but to the border between Mexico and Guatemala. You could do that, but that would be an invasion of Mexico. And, like, Mexico, uh, I mean, Mexico, I guess, would have to agree to it. Well, I mean, it would be an invasion of Mexico (laughs) if it was an invasion of Mexico. Like, like, we don't do that. There's also, like, the tricky fact that, like, these are currently Mexican police, not necessarily the Mexican army. Like, the situation on the Mexico-Guatemala border is not something that anyone involved, I think, wants to escalate and be and sending in the military would be seen as an escalation of that. I don't know how you get out of it. It doesn't appear to me that it's going away on its own, certainly, but I definitely think that literally every party involved, I mean, Mexico really doesn't want to be in the business of killing uh, Central American migrants. The Central American governments really don't want Mexico killing their people. So, you know, I don't know that a military response is the right answer here. It's just that, like, while the U.S. government appears, you know, has the luxury of bringing in the military for pre-positioning, of running all these drills, that kind of thing, Mexico, which does not have the state capacity that the U.S. does, is already dealing with these issues with less lead time, with, you know, a much less physically secured border. Like, the fact right. that you can just jump off the bridge of the Suchiate River and swim across it is not an analogous situation. So it is not as easy situation to control. But I think it's certainly notable that instead of saying we're going to send thousands of, you know, troops to guard the border, the Mexican government is trying to figure out how to keep this distinctly in the civil law enforcement space. I I, I guess I'm saying it's not that the United States should invade Mexico, but that if I'm thinking about Mexico's interests, right, if there's going to be escalation one place or another— it would be much worse for Mexico to have the border with the United States shut down than to have the border with Guatemala shut down, right? If you wind up, right, if if a top-tier priority of the American government is going to be that people cannot come from Guatemala through Mexico into the United States and, like, the U.S. government is, like, really committed to that, and we are going to do what it takes. I feel like what I would want to do is get the United States to do something helpful through some definition of helpful in southern Mexico. And let's be clear, the military would not be that solution, right? right? Like, uh, not only just because of the whole invasion optics, but also— But, I mean, if you need someone—if you need 22 miles of concertina wire— Yeah, if you need 22 miles of concertina wire— Apparently, we have a lot of concertina wire. And 150, like, in reserve, ready to go. This is is how we get the U.S. steel industry back together, right? (laughs) Exactly right, Right. yeah. Mexico is a major, uh, you know, concrete producer. I mean, you know, maybe maybe instead of Mexico paying for a wall on the U.S. border, like, we could pay for a wall on the Guatemalan border. Border. There's like a lot of I mean, smaller I, border. I mean, I saw. I saw. It sounded like what Amlo was asking for last week. That basically, like, he was characterizing as economic development rather than border security. Yeah. But like, he was just like asking for money. 
right? He was right, like, look, right. if this is a big problem, like, give us some money so we can address it. Yeah, um, and, uh, you know, I don't think that AMLO or, for that matter, the uh, governments of the Northern Triangle countries would like to see border militarization as kind of the end-all and be-all of a border policy. Like, all of them acknowledge that there's going to be a regional problem regardless of what the United States does and that the Northern Triangle countries are not terrific places to be right now and maybe some effort should be made to make that not the case anymore. Of course, you know, as we flagged the last time we talked about this, this gets into questions of to what extent are the Northern Triangle governments themselves the problem and to what extent can they fix it and all of that. But you know, the U.S. has been taking a very consistent line with Mexico that it needs to have the exact same approach to immigration that the U.S. does, which is trying to beef up its border so that as few people get in without authorization as possible. And Mexico has followed suit, but I don't know if you can get Mexico to go full Trump on this one. Yeah, I don't think you could. Um, obviously, there'll be pressures on AMLO, and there already are, to like back away from him. As you already said, rhetorically, he's he's kind of done so, although the policies line up. I think over time, that will be a problem. Right. Um, the big thing especially will be how the new free trade deal kind of plays out. Um, but at the end of the day, I think what I kind of want to get across, whether it be the, the Mexico relationship, the immigration relationship, like – when you reach for the military option, sure. right, it's supposed to be the last one. Right. And I don't know enough about – and Dara does, but I don't know enough about, like, the history of our immigration system to the point that have we exhausted every option? My instinct would say no. Um, and frankly, even if we did, like, this is still not enough to deter people from coming because they also know the rules of engagement. Yeah, yeah. I think that have we exhausted – our options to, you know, to deal with this? The answer to that is definitely no. There is a very, very big disagreement about, like, there are people on kind of both sides of this issue who agree that the fundamental problem is that people are coming because they know they have a reasonable chance of being allowed to stay and make an asylum case, um, that they have, you know, an 80% chance of passing their initial screening interview. Now, you know, the Stevens Miller of the world say there is systemic fraud in the asylum system, and we know there is systemic fraud because most people don't get their asylum claims approved, which is not how fraud works. But, you know, the argument there is that we need to change the laws that govern asylum and that screening interview so that people don't have a chance of staying anymore. The argument on the other side is, no, 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 they're using the law as it's meant to be used. We need to make sure that we increase capacity to take them in so that this legal pathway that Congress has, you know, entrenched in law is reasonably available, that we need to have more resources at ports of entry to process people so that there's no temptation to cross between ports of entry, you know, that we need to resource the system so that people aren't waiting years to get their asylum claims adjudicated, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not that we've exhausted every option. It's just that the U.S. has always been in a position where throwing money at the border is the easiest solution because otherwise you get into difficult questions of who should come But, I mean, why. there's a conceptual disagreement, right? I mean, the, the Trump administration's view, more or less, is that people come and they make asylum claims. A large share of them pass the initial screening. And then they are sort of released into the interior while they wait for their hearing, and that this is a loophole. 
Right. I mean, like that's the that's the sort of the underlying view here that that they have. Because if you don't view that as a loophole, right? If you just say like, look, the asylum system is good, then it's like then there's no problem, right? You could be like, look, like we 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 could just tell the Mexican government to give them transit visas. We yes. could send some extra people with forms to the border rather than people with guns. But but like their stance. And sort of the stance of the Obama administration was that people come with claims that they know are not likely to be approved because they want to take advantage of the sort of interim opportunity to wait for that adjudication. And that's where we have all these other questions about the zero tolerance and the detentions and, like, Trump talking about tent cities. Right. The Trump endgame is that if they could make it really unpleasant to get your asylum claim made, they think people would stop coming. Yeah, I mean, how gung-ho people are about that varies. Uh, I've heard that, you know, within Customs and Border Protection referred to you know, children and families in particular as non-impactables. Like, immigration enforcement does not impact their decision to come to the U.S. or not. Uh-huh. Uh, it's much more about the expectation of being able to stay for the duration of an asylum claim. So the maximal cruelty position is less supported empirically than the idea that if people are coming because they have a reasonable expectation of being able to stay and you change the expectation that, you know, you change the likelihood of that, that right. would change the expectation. The second one is much more empirically supported. The question there is how do you do that in a way that is consistent with existing, you know, obligations in federal and international law? <laughs> but so we have not been talking about this weird Fourth and 13th Amendment trial Oh, my gosh. Um, because they have a— realer trial balloon, which is that they will roll out sort of the travel ban type rule and just say asylum claim. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what what they're saying is that the president could just hand down an order and say that we will not be accepting asylum claims at the southern ports of entry. Yeah, it's not super clear how this would work. My understanding is that they would first need to issue— a regulation, but, like, not in the standard regulation form, in the, like, this is an interim final regulation, so it's immediately in effect while we Mm -hmm. do a review of it, saying, by the way, being subject to a 212F declaration, which is the provision that Trump used for the travel ban, means that you are prima facie ineligible for asylum. It's a national security claim, right? Uh. The regulatory claim would be within the kind of attorney general's, like, the the 1980 Refugee Act basically says the attorney general shall set regulations for asylum and, like, that's it. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of regulatory flexibility there. And then they would have to make the 212F declaration that there are national interest reasons Mm. to not allow— a particular group of people to enter the United States and to consider them inadmissible, the combination of those two things would make it impossible for people to claim asylum. Who exactly they're trying to target with the 212F declaration is still not clear. In theory, this would be something to, quote unquote, target the caravan. I have not heard an argument for how you do that without at least opening up the possibility that everybody coming from a Northern Triangle country gets labeled as part of the caravan and therefore not allowed to pursue an asylum claim. Um, And there have also kind of been 
rumors of other things they could do, like, you know, kind of unilaterally asserting that people would have to wait in Mexico for the duration of proceedings, like trying to limit the availability of asylum screening interviews as opposed to these other more limited kind of opportunities that are available to people who have, for example, already been deported. Like, in that case, you have to meet a higher bar to be allowed to stay and pursue a claim. There are lots of things that they could do. The 212F appears to be the one that, like, was reported first and is most plausible. There are lots of details, both legal and obviously, like, of implementation that would have to be worked out. And the weird thing about this is, like, all of this was supposed to be announced last night. Like, Trump was supposed to give a speech last night on Tuesday that, you know, laid this thing out. He tipped his hand over the weekend at a rally and said, we're going to do something on immigration that you're really going to like. That didn't happen probably because of his trip to Pittsburgh instead. It hasn't, like, been rescheduled or anything. But it's not exactly clear that they plan to work out all of the operational details before this goes out. So I have been, you know, the the possibility of, like, January 2017-level chaos is very real. And the spirit of these ideas is to illegalize the whole thing, right? That right now, claiming asylum is a thing that one can do and that there are a bunch of legal procedures around and that then— when it's not like one guy per month claiming asylum, but like a lot of people claiming asylum, the system gets taxed and it raises a lot of questions. Like, do you put more resources into the asylum system because asylum is good? No administration has done that, right? Like nobody has said, you are allowed to apply for asylum because we think it is good for people to get asylum. So when the number of asylum claim rises, we will respond by just having more people get asylum, right? right? Instead, both Obama and Trump have in their different ways conceptualized this as a problem. That, like, we meant to have asylum policies, but we meant for only a small number of people to be using them. So now that there are a lot of people using them, we need to do something to make those people go away. And one thing they could do is try to issue orders and regulations to just say no, that like per se, this act of coming to the northern border in this way is is illegal. And now we have the army, so, right? You know, like, I think that, that the other side of this is that, you know, when we talk about the stuff that Jeff Sessions is doing on immigration, for example, something that I keep bringing up is that uh, Congress doesn't think of the DOJ as having a role in the immigration system, and so they haven't resourced it. This runs smack dab into that, right? Mm-hmm. If you're pursuing an asylum claim by crossing into the U.S. without papers, that case is going to go in front of an immigration judge. So it's part of the exact same backlog that is the problem with trying to arrest and deport somebody here. That's not necessarily—that overlaps with the problem of seeing an increase in asylum seekers as, like, a border security risk. But it also just means that the, like, total sclerosis of Congress when it comes to immigration means— that this very significant shift in who is coming to the U.S.-Mexico border over the last five years has not been met with any shift in what the U.S. is equipped to respond to. So this is, and you know, this is something that the Trump administration says that they're absolutely correct about. We have a system that's designed to quickly apprehend and deport single Mexican men. And that's not the majority of who's coming anymore. So this is what bothers me kind of high level of this whole military use, right, is 
you can, again, you can make the argument it's a reasonable response to a security concern, but it's not a response to the immigration issues that we're dealing with. This is clearly what Trump is reaching for, and in his deal-maker sense, he just goes, well, maybe instead of dealing with all these laws, what if I just put troops at the border and then people won't come here? Right. And this is a massive, massive politicization of the military that it's, I mean, obviously we've been doing that for a while, but like, it shouldn't be this way. This is a, and you could argue it's a massive misuse of just active duty troops who should be going and doing other things instead of this. Like, for this to be the policy backstop to mess, like, to make DOD pay for this, to take active troops out of, out of sort of the line, to have this be the way we're dealing with immigrants now is a horrible use of our national security thinking. And it's crazy to me outside of the security issue that this is even, like, happening. Right. I mean, yeah, I guess, I mean, if you want to talk about cost in particular, like, a world in which there was funding for the agency that hires immigration judges and there had been a, you know, Trump and Sessions have hired a ton of immigration judges, um, but a world in which that had started earlier and the backlog hadn't gotten as bad, a world in which— you know, there were enough asylum officers so that they weren't having to send substantial amounts of the refugee officer corps to the border to deal with asylum. You know, those might be more cost efficient than the cost of sending 5,200 troops to the border. But that would have required a certain amount of kind of advanced planning, not just from Trump, but from Obama and not just from the president, but from Congress. One thing about the military, right, is that it exists— with a level of flexibility in terms of the president's direction, right? So, like, you can just say, hey, guys, like, fly over here instead of going over there in a way that's difficult with with the domestic budget, right? And this is part of what becomes unsettling about the injection of the military and the sort of commander-in-chief authority into a domestic political controversy, right? Because sort of by design, the president can't just say, like, no, Medicare is going to stop paying for people's health care, and instead we're going to, like, send doctors where I want them to go, right? Like, that's right. it's domestic yeah. politics, right? Like, there are laws. But you can't run the military that way, right? To respond to national security threats, the president needs to be able to move the pieces on the chessboard reasonably flexibly. But, like, putting that chess game inside the United States of America, inside policy questions about immigration is a an escalation right. of yeah right of of politics right i mean it's politics by other means in a in an unsettling kind of way sure and like i i mean to be completely fair like it also makes sense why the military can do this right they're the one they're the logistics experts they have the money they have legal flexibility right. like there of course like it makes sense why it's the reached for tool but like there are reasons We've sort of rejected doing this in the past because there's democracy concerns. There are, like, just legal concerns. There are questions about this being a Band-Aid, right? So, like, the fact that this is kind of the go-to, right? We've done this now two missions in one year with more troops coming. Like, it's very clear that this is the immigration policy in a way. Okay, so last shot. So midterms are six days away, at which point, you know, these kind of electioneering concerns change a little bit. How does that change? Like, is the caravan, are we going to find that the number of people in the caravan sort of winnows as it has in the past, and so Trump declares victory? Or as the caravan gets closer to the border, are we going to have a 
escalating ratchet, even with the elections done. So I am so, so worried about this. And I know that this is why you do this up for me. What happened in April was once the National Guard got sent, Trump didn't like officially declare victory. But, you know, once the National Guard got sent and Mexico intervened to disperse the caravan, Trump stopped paying attention to the issue. And so it fell off the political radar. At the same time, the policy ratchet was, you know, that had been set in motion was continuing. So between when the caravan first came to Trump's attention and when he sent the National Guard and the point where they actually arrived at San Ysidro, zero tolerance had been set in motion. Uh, it didn't reach its complete fruition until a few weeks later, but it was already like the DOJ had already set up its half of zero tolerance, which, of course, you know, was the policy that created family separation as a widespread phenomenon. The kind of use of restricting entrance at ports of entry because of concerns about capacity ostensibly at ports of entry for asylum seekers was already in effect. You know, the border crackdown of this spring and summer, you know, it wasn't reined in after people stopped paying attention to the caravan. Those, you know, that had already been set in motion. And so by the same token, if something like this travel ban for asylum, what I've been jokingly calling a caravan, uh, though, again, you know, probably be broader than just the caravan, were to be put in effect, it's possible that people, that it would not get the attention that, you know, sending troops to the border has because if Donald Trump is no longer paying attention to it, even if the Trump administration is doing things that, you know, doing the exact same things they would do if they were getting angry calls from the president every day, it won't necessarily rise to the level of a national emergency. Like, I don't remember how much I've ranted about this on the pod versus just two people generally, but family separation didn't get attention when it started. Like, I and everybody else on the beat was saying, when they say zero tolerance, what they mean is that parents will be separated from their children to be prosecuted. It got attention a few weeks later for reasons involving, like, inadvertent, you know, confusion or fake news, but it didn't get attention because people weren't paying attention to the border at that point. They had stopped paying attention after the caravan had been, you know, had, had stopped being something the president was talking about. So this is really the downside of allowing what the president is saying to set what people are paying attention to on immigration is that Donald Trump's grasp of policy is not such that he cares a lot about them, but that doesn't mean their impact isn't super important. Sweet. Okay, well, thank you, Alex, for joining us. Hope to have you back on the pod someday. Perhaps we will have ever-growing militarization of American domestic public policy, and we can Let's we can just not, merge forever. Maybe we can find other excuses for Alex to come on that don't involve no, ongoing I disagree. I, I feel like if I'm on the show, something bad has happened. I disagree. <laughs> just collapse. <laughs> collapse of civilian government is going to be a great, great reason for an episode. Um, it's going to be amazing. I should, of course, thank our producer, Griffin Tanner. But yeah, we will be back on Friday, and then we're going to try to go off the news on Tuesday and do a midterms wrap up next Wednesday. So we will see you all out there. Huh? More to do's, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. 
Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.